Chapter Seventeen, Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit, by Charles Dickens, Chapter Seventeen. Martin enlarges his circle of acquaintance, increases his stock of wisdom and has an excellent opportunity of comparing his own experiences with those of Lummy Ned of the Light Salisbury, as related by his friend Mr. William Simmons. Part One. It was characteristic of Martin that all this while he had either forgotten Mark Tapley as completely as if there had been no such person in existence, or, if for a moment the figure of that gentleman rose before his mental vision, had dismissed it as something by no means of a pressing nature, which might be attended to by and by, and could wait his perfect leisure. But being now in the streets again, it occurred to him, as just coming within the bare limits of possibility, that Mr. Tapley might, in course of time, grow tired of waiting on the threshold of the rowdy journal office. So he intimated to his new friend that if they could conveniently walk in that direction, he would be glad to get this piece of business off his mind. "'And speaking of business,' said Martin, "'may I ask, in order that I may not be behind-hand with questions either, "'whether your occupation holds you to this city, "'or, like myself, you are a visitor here?' "'A visitor,' replied his friend. "'I was raised in the state of Massachusetts, and reside there still. "'My home is in a quiet country town. "'I am not often in these busy places, "'and my inclination to visit them does not increase "'with our better acquaintance, I assure you.' "'You have been abroad?' asked Martin. "'Oh, yes. "'And like most people who travel, "'have become more than ever attached to your home and native country?' "'said Martin, eyeing him curiously. "'To my home, yes,' rejoined his friend. "'To my native country, as my home, yes, also.' "'You imply some reservation,' said Martin. "'Well,' returned his new friend, if you ask me whether I came back here with a greater relish for my country's faults, with a greater fondness for those who claim, at the rate of so many dollars a day, to be her friends, with a cooler indifference to the growth of principles among us in respect of public matters and of private dealings between man and man, the advocacy of which, beyond the foul atmosphere of a criminal trial, would disgrace your own old Bailey lawyers, why, then I answer plainly, no." "'Oh,' said Martin, in so exactly the same key as his friend's no, that it sounded like an echo. "'If you ask me,' his companion pursued, "'whether I came back here better satisfied with the state of things which broadly divides society into two classes, whereof one, the great mass, asserts a spurious independence, most miserably dependent for its mean existence, on the disregard of humanizing conventionalities of manner and social custom, so that the coarser a man is, the more distinctly it shall appeal to his taste, while the other, disgusted with the low standard thus set up and made adaptable to everything, takes refuge among the graces and refinements it can bring to bear on private life, and leaves the public wheel to such fortune as may betide it in the press and uproar of a general scramble. Then again I answer no. And again Martin said, oh, in the same odd way as before. 
being anxious and disconcerted, not so much to say the truth on public grounds, as with reference to the fading prospects of domestic architecture. "'In a word,' resumed the other, "'I do not find and cannot believe, and therefore will not allow, that we are a model of wisdom and an example to the world, and the perfection of human reason, and a great deal more to the same purpose which you may hear any hour in the day, simply because we began our political life with two inestimable advantages.' "'What were they?' asked Martin. "'One, that our history commenced at so late a period as to escape the ages of bloodshed and cruelty through which other nations have passed, and so had all the light of their probation and none of its darkness. The other, that we have a vast territory, and not, as yet, too many people on it. These facts considered, we have done little enough, I think.' "'Education?' suggested martin faintly pretty well on that head said the other shrugging his shoulders still no mighty matter to boast of for old countries and despotic countries too have done as much if not more and made less noise about it we shine out brightly in comparison with england certainly but hers is a very extreme case you complimented me on my frankness you know he added laughing "'Oh, I am not at all astonished at your speaking thus openly when my country is in question,' returned Martin. "'It is your plain speaking in reference to your own that surprises me. "'You will not find it a scarce quality here, I assure you. "'Saving among the Colonel Divers and Jefferson Bricks and Major Pawkinses, "'though the best of us are something like the man in Goldsmith's comedy, "'who wouldn't suffer anybody but himself to abuse his master.' "'Come,' he added, "'let us talk of something else. "'You have come here on some design of improving your fortune, I dare say, "'and I should grieve to put you out of heart. "'I am some years older than you besides, "'and may, on a few trivial points, advise you, perhaps.' "'There was not the least curiosity or impertinence in the manner of this offer, "'which was open-hearted, unaffected, and good-natured. "'As it was next to impossible that he should not have his confidence awakened "'by a deportment so prepossessing and kind, "'Martin plainly stated what had brought him into those parts, "'and even made the very difficult avowal that he was poor. "'He did not say how poor, it must be admitted, "'rather throwing off the declaration with an air "'which might have implied that he had money enough for six months "'instead of as many weeks.' but poor he said he was, and grateful he said he would be, for any counsel that his friend would give him. It would not have been very difficult for any one to see, but it was particularly easy for Martin, whose perceptions were sharpened by his circumstances, to discern, that the stranger's face grew infinitely longer as the domestic architecture project was developed. Nor, although he made a great effort to be as encouraging as possible, could he prevent his head from shaking once, involuntarily, as if it said in the vulgar tongue upon its own account, No go. But he spoke in a cheerful tone, and said that although there was no such opening as Martin wished in that city, he would make it matter of immediate consideration and inquiry where one was most likely to exist. And then he made Martin acquainted with his name, which was Bevan, and with his profession, which was physic, though he seldom or never practised, and with other circumstances connected with himself and family, which fully occupied the time until they reached the rowdy journal office. Mr. Tapley appeared to be taking his ease on the landing of the first floor, 
for sounds as of some gentleman established in that region whistling rule britannia with all his might and main greeted their ears before they reached the house on ascending to the spot from whence this music proceeded they found him recumbent in the midst of a fortification of luggage apparently performing his national anthem for the gratification of a grey-haired black man who sat on one of the outworks a portmanteau staring intently at mark while mark with his head reclining on his hand returned the compliment in a thoughtful manner and whistled all the time he seemed to have recently dined for his knife, a case-bottle, and certain broken meats in a handkerchief lay near at hand. He had employed a portion of his leisure in the decoration of the rowdy journal door, whereon his own initials now appeared, in letters nearly half a foot long, together with the day of the month in smaller type, the whole surrounded by an ornamental border and looking very fresh and bold. "'I was a-most afraid you was lost, sir,' cried Mark, rising and stopping the tune at that point where britons generally are supposed to declare when it is whistled that they never 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 nothing gone wrong i hope sir no mark where's your friend the mad woman sir said mr tapley oh she's all right sir did she find her husband yes sir leastways she's found his remains said mark correcting himself the man's not dead i hope "'Not altogether dead, sir,' returned Mark. "'But he's had more fevers and agues than is quite reconcilable with being alive. "'When she didn't see him awaiting for her, I thought she'd have died herself, I did. "'Was he not here, then?' "'He wasn't here. "'There was a feeble old shadow come a-creeping down at last, "'as much like his substance when she knowed him as your shadow "'when it's drawn out to its very finest and longest by the sun is like you.' "'But it was his remains, there's no doubt about that. "'She took on with joy, poor thing, as much as if it had been all of him. "'Had he bought land?' asked Mr. Bevan. "'Ah, he'd bought land,' said Mark, shaking his head, "'and paid for it, too. "'Every sort of natural advantage was connected with it,' the agent said, "'and there certainly was one, quite unlimited, no end of the water.' "'It's a thing he couldn't have done without, I suppose,' observed Martin peevishly. "'Certainly not, sir. There it was, anyway. Always turned on and no water rate. Independent of three or four slimy old rivers close by, it varied on the farm from four to six foot deep in the dry season. He couldn't say how deep it was in the rainy time, for he never had anything long enough to sound it with.' "'Is this true?' asked Martin of his companion." "'Extremely probable,' he answered. "'Some Mississippi or Missouri lot, I dare say.' "'However,' pursued Mark, "'he came from, I don't know where and all, "'down to New York here to meet his wife and children, "'and they started off again in a steamboat this blessed afternoon, "'as happy to be along with each other as if they were going to heaven. "'I should think they was pretty straight, "'if I may judge from the poor man's looks.' "'And may I ask,' said Martin, glancing, but not with any displeasure from Mark to the negro, "'who this gentleman is, another friend of yours?' "'Why, sir,' returned Mark, taking him aside and speaking confidentially in his ear, "'he's a man of colour, sir.' "'Do you take me for a blind man?' asked Martin, somewhat impatiently. "'That you think it necessary to tell me that when his face is the blackest that ever was seen?' "'No, no.' 
"'When I say a man of colour, returned Mark, "'I mean that he's been one of them as there's pictures of in the shops. "'A man and a brother, you know, sir,' said Mr. Tapley, "'favouring his master with a significant indication "'of the figure so often represented in tracts and cheap prints. "'A slave?' cried Martin, in a whisper. "'Ah!' said Mark, in the same tone. "'Nothing else. A slave. "'Why, when that there man was young, "'don't look at him while I'm a-telling it. "'He was shot in the leg, gashed in the arm, "'scored in his live limbs like crimped fish, "'beaten out of shape, "'had his neck galled with an iron collar, "'and wore iron rings upon his wrists and ankles. "'The marks are on him to this day. "'When I was having my dinner just now, "'he stripped off his coat and took away my appetite.' "'Is this true?' asked Martin of his friend, who stood beside them. "'I have no reason to doubt it,' he answered, shaking his head. "'It very often is.' "'Bless you,' said Mark. "'I know it is, from hearing his whole story. "'That master died. "'So did his second master, from having his head cut open with a hatchet by another slave, "'who, when he'd done it, went and drowned himself. "'Then he got a better one. "'In years and years he saved up a little money and bought his freedom,' which he got pretty cheap at last, on account of his strength being nearly gone, and he being ill. Then he come here, and now he is a-saving up to treat himself, afore he dies, to one small purchase. It's nothing to speak of, only his own daughter, that's all, cried Mr. Tapley, becoming excited. Liberty forever! Hurrah! Hail Columbia! Hush! cried Martin, clapping his hand upon his mouth, and don't be an idiot. What is he doing here? "'Waiting to take our luggage off upon a truck,' said Mark. "'He'd have come for it by and by, "'but I engaged him for a very reasonable charge, "'out of my own pocket, "'to sit along with me and make me jolly. "'And I am jolly, and if I was rich enough to contract with him "'to wait upon me once a day to be looked at, "'I'd never be anything else.' "'The fact may cause a solemn impeachment of Mark's veracity,' but it must be admitted, nevertheless, that there was that in his face and manner at the moment which militated strongly against this emphatic declaration of his state of mind. "'Lord love you, sir,' he added, "'they're so fond of liberty in this part of the globe that they buy her and sell her and carry her to market with them. They've such a passion for liberty that they can't help taking liberties with her. That's what it's owing to.' "'Very well,' said Martin, wishing to change the theme. "'Having come to that conclusion, Mark, perhaps you'll attend to me. "'The place to which the luggage is to go is printed on this card. "'Mrs. Pawkins's boarding-house.' "'Mrs. Pawkins's boarding-house,' repeated Mark. "'Now, Cicero.' "'Is that his name?' asked Martin. "'That's his name, sir,' rejoined Mark. "'And the negro grinning assent from under a leathern portmanteau, "'than which his own face was many shades deeper,' "'hobbled downstairs with his portion of their worldly goods, "'Mark Tapley having already gone before with his share. "'Martin and his friend followed them to the door below, "'and were about to pursue their walk when the latter stopped "'and asked with some hesitation whether that young man was to be trusted. "'Mark? Oh, certainly, with anything. "'You don't understand me. I think he had better go with us. "'He is an honest fellow and speaks his mind so very plainly.' "'Why, the fact is,' said Martin, smiling, "'that being unaccustomed to a free republic, he is used to do so.' "'I think he had better go with us,' returned the other. "'He may get into some trouble otherwise. 
This is not a slave state, but I am ashamed to say that a spirit of tolerance is not so common anywhere in these latitudes as the form. We are not remarkable for behaving very temperately to each other when we differ, but to strangers? No, I really think he had better go with us. Martin called to him immediately to be of their party, so Cicero and the truck went one way, and they three went another. They walked about the city for two or three hours, seeing it from the best points of view, and pausing in the principal streets, and before such public buildings as Mr. Bevan pointed out. Night then coming on apace, Martin proposed that they should adjourn to Mrs. Pawkins's establishment for coffee. But in this he was overruled by his new acquaintance, who seemed to have set his heart on carrying him, though it were only for an hour, to the house of a friend of his who lived hard by. Feeling, however disinclined he was, being weary, that it would be in bad taste and not very gracious to object that he was unintroduced, when this open-hearted gentleman was so ready to be his sponsor, Martin, for once in his life at all events, sacrificed his own will and pleasure to the wishes of another, and consented with a fair grace, so travelling had done him that much good already. Mr. Bevan knocked at the door of a very neat house of moderate size, from the parlour windows of which lights were shining brightly into the now dark street. It was quickly opened by a man with such a thoroughly Irish face that it seemed as if he ought, as a matter of right and principle, to be in rags, and could have no sort of business to be looking cheerfully at anybody out of a whole suit of clothes. Commending Mark to the care of this phenomenon, for such he may be said to have been in Martin's eyes, Mr. Bevan led the way into the room which had shed its cheerfulness upon the street, to whose occupants he introduced Mr. Chuzzlewit as a gentleman from England, whose acquaintance he had recently had the pleasure to make. They gave him welcome in all courtesy and politeness, and in less than five minutes' time he found himself sitting very much at his ease by the fireside, and becoming vastly well acquainted with the whole family. There were two young ladies, one eighteen, the other twenty, both very slender but very pretty. Their mother, who looked, as Martin thought, much older and more faded than she ought to have looked, and their grandmother, a little sharp-eyed, quick old woman, who seemed to have got past that stage, and to have come all right again. Besides these, there were the young lady's father and the young lady's brother, the first engaged in mercantile affairs, the second a student at college. Both, in a certain cordiality of manner, like his own friend, and not unlike him in face. Which was no great wonder, for it soon appeared that he was their near relation— Martin could not help tracing the family pedigree from the two young ladies, because they were foremost in his thoughts, not only from being, as aforesaid, very pretty, but by reason of their wearing miraculously small shoes and the thinnest possible silk stockings, the which their rocking chairs developed to a distracting extent. There is no doubt that it was a monstrous comfortable circumstance to be sitting in a snug, well-furnished room, warmed by a cheerful fire, and full of various pleasant decorations, including four small shoes and the like amount of silk stockings, and, yes, why not, the feet and legs therein enshrined. And there is no doubt that Martin was monstrous well disposed to regard his position in that light, after his recent experience of the screw and of Mrs. Pawkins's boarding-house. The consequence was that he made himself very agreeable indeed— and by the time the tea and coffee arrived, 
with sweet preserves and cunning tea-cakes in its train, was in a highly genial state, and much esteemed by the whole family. Another delightful circumstance turned up before the first cup of tea was drunk. The whole family had been in England. There was a pleasant thing. But Martin was not quite so glad of this when he found that they knew all the great dukes, lords, viscounts, marquesses, duchesses, knights, and baronets quite affectionately, and were, beyond everything, interested in the least particular concerning them. However, when they asked after the wearer of this or that coronet, and said, "'Was he quite well?' Martin answered, "'Yes, oh, yes, never better.' And when they said his lordship's mother, the duchess, was she much changed, Martin said, "'Oh, dear, no, they would know her anywhere if they saw her to-morrow,' and so got on pretty well. In like manner, when the young ladies questioned him, touching the gold fish in that Grecian fountain in such and such a nobleman's conservatory, and whether there were as many as there used to be, he gravely reported, after mature consideration, that there must be at least twice as many— and as to the exotics, oh, well, it was of no use talking about them. They must be seen to be believed. Which improved state of circumstances reminded the family of the splendor of that brilliant festival, comprehending the whole British peerage and court calendar, to which they were specially invited, and which indeed had been partly given in their honor. And recollections of what Mr. Norris the father had said to the Marquess, and of what Mrs. Norris the mother had said to the Marchioness, and of what the Marquess and Marchioness had both said, when they said that upon their words and honours they wished Mr. Norris the father, and Mrs. Norris the mother, and the Mrs. Norris the daughters, and Mr. Norris junior the son, would only take up their permanent residence in England, and give them the pleasure of their everlasting friendship, occupied a very considerable time." Martin thought it rather strange, and in some sort inconsistent, that during the whole of these narrations, and in the very meridian of their enjoyment thereof, both Mr. Norris the father, and Mr. Norris junior the son, who corresponded every post with four members of the English peerage, enlarged upon the inestimable advantage of having no such arbitrary distinctions in that enlightened land, where there were no noblemen but nature's noblemen, and where all society was based on one broad level of brotherly love and natural equality. Indeed, Mr. Norris, the father, gradually expanding into an oration on this swelling theme, was becoming tedious, when Mr. Bevan diverted his thoughts by happening to make some causal inquiry relative to the occupier of the next house, in reply to which the same Mr. Norris, the father, observed that, that person entertained religious opinions of which he couldn't approve, and therefore he hadn't the honour of knowing the gentleman. Mrs. Norris, the mother, added another reason of her own, the same in effect, but varying in words, to wit, that she believed the people were well enough in their way, but they were not genteel. Another little trait came out which impressed itself on Martin forcibly. Mr. Bevan told them about Mark and the Negro— and then it appeared that all the Norrises were abolitionists. It was a great relief to hear this, and Martin was so much encouraged on finding himself in such company that he expressed his sympathy with the oppressed and wretched blacks. Now, one of the young ladies, the prettiest and most delicate, was mightily amused at the earnestness with which he spoke, and on his craving leave to ask her why was quite unable for a time to speak for laughing. 
As soon, however, as she could, she told him that the negroes were such a funny people, so excessively ludicrous in their manners and appearance, that it was wholly impossible for those who knew them well to associate any serious ideas with such a very absurd part of the creation." Mr. Norris the father, and Mrs. Norris the mother, and Miss Norris the sister, and Mr. Norris junior the brother, and even Mrs. Norris senior the grandmother, were all of this opinion, and laid it down as an absolute matter of fact, as if there were nothing in suffering and slavery grim enough to cast a solemn air on any human animal, though it were as ridiculous physically as the most grotesque of apes, or morally as the mildest nimrod among tough-hunting republicans." "'In short,' said Mr. Norris, the father, settling the question comfortably, "'there is a natural antipathy between the races.' "'Extending,' said Martin's friend, in a low voice, "'to the cruelest of tortures and the bargain and sale of unborn generations.' Mr. Norris, the son, said nothing, but he made a wry face, and dusted his fingers as Hamlet might after getting rid of York's skull— just as though he had that moment touched a negro and some of the black had come off upon his hands. In order that their talk might fall again into its former pleasant channel, Martin dropped the subject with a shrewd suspicion that it would be a dangerous theme to revive under the best of circumstances, and again addressed himself to the young ladies, who were very gorgeously attired in very beautiful colours, and had every article of dress on the same extensive scale as the little shoes and the thin silk stockings. This suggested to him that they were great proficients in the French fashions, which soon turned out to be the case, for though their information appeared to be none of the newest, it was very extensive, and the eldest sister, in particular, who was distinguished by a talent for metaphysics, the laws of hydraulic pressure, and the rights of humankind, had a novel way of combining these acquirements, and bringing them to bear on any subject from millinery to the millennium, both inclusive, which was at once improving and remarkable, so much so, in short, that it was usually observed to reduce foreigners to a state of temporary insanity in five minutes. End of chapter 17, part 1